Rooted in Revenue with your host today, Susan Finch. Everybody, Susan Finch here, your host today for Rooted in Revenue, and this is part of the Funnel Radio Network, and I have so many shows I could put our guest Mark Donegan on, but this one to me fits best. So Mark Donegan is my guest today. He is a virtual CMO of Growth Stage Marketing, and I love one of his taglines. I grow startup companies all over the world. That tells you so much about him and what you're going to be learning from him today. He designs and executes marketing playbooks that produces real business results from early and growth stage technology, disruptive innovation startup companies. He's a proven transformative B2B marketing and business leader. And that's why I want to have him on. For the points we're going to cover today, I'm hoping we get to them all. And if not, well, we might have to have him back. The importance of having a strong relationship between the CMO, CRO, and CEO even if a couple of you are wearing both hats. The reason Mark feels today's CMO should be a business strategist and an ecosystem domain expert first. And how to approach making your first marketing hire and why recruits from big name companies often fail. I hear those stories all the time and that I really want to dive into. And why Mark believes that marketers with sales experience are more effective. I think a lot of marketers too don't realize, and we're going to cover this, Mark, but they are sales experts. I don't know what their aversion is to saying, I'm a salesperson or a sales pro, but we'll get to that too. So welcome, Mark. I'm so glad you're here. Well, it's great to be here, Susan. Thank you so much. And I love it. Rooted in revenue. That's me. So I'm so happy to be on this show in particular. So thank you. We had a choice of four and that one seemed to fit the best. <laughs> I, I, I know. And I know originally when we booked, we booked for another one of your shows and you came back and said, you know, I think this one would be a good fit. So yeah, it's really great to be here. And, and you know, I'm super passionate about the topics that you named and I can't wait to dive in. Terrific. So what I want to start with is the first point, and that is the importance of having a strong relationship between the CMO, CRO, and CEO I know in so many cases, they all work kind of autonomously, at least in the companies that fail, and the ones that don't have that very close, unguarded, egoless to a degree relationship with that common goal. Can you expand on that? I can. You know, it, you use the word common goal, and, and that really hits the nail on the head because the common goal is to build the business. And that seems so obvious. And yet we can get into so many companies where because of the silos and yeah, there might be egos and fiefdoms and whatever, but you have marketing that is always sort of at war with sales and sales that always thinks that marketing isn't delivering and back and forth. And then product gets brought in, you know, well, if product was just delivering, you know, then we could, and, and you can't win that way. You can't win that way. And so when it comes to marketing and sales, the integration, not only between the marketing leader and the sales leader is absolutely essential today. And we can talk into, into more detail as exactly why that is, because it really does extend beyond just, well, it's important that a professional team work together and all the executives should be rowing the same direction and all these kind of truisms, which are all true, but there's some very profound implications to how we market and how we sell, which gets wrapped up in go-to-market as a result of the fragmented buyer's journey. 
that we are in today. And so love to dive in and talk more about that. But let me mention that the CEO, the relationship for the chief marketing officer, VP of marketing, whatever the title is, whoever is heading up marketing, that marketing function, that person, unless they're also the CEO, needs to be joined at the hip with the CEO. Now, again, that's not just because, well, of course, you're part of the executive team, probably the CEO is your boss, you know, you should be connected. But what I mean by that is that it is super critical to have insights into the future strategy or the strategies, the future direction, where the market is going, where the CEO sees the company moving. Because marketing today is actually the tip of the spear in far more than just brand awareness or demand growth, you know, demand gen, lead gen, sales development, all that kind of stuff. And that is really why, you know, what we're talking about here is just super critical to get right. I want to talk about that you put in your title, and I'm seeing this more and more, virtual CMOs. And I know, but there's another term that kind of goes hand in hand to a degree, and that's fractional CMO. That's right. And so they are related many times. And sometimes they're not. Sometimes people are physically going into like two and three companies, physically walking in the building, spending their time each week. And sometimes they do that same thing, but all virtually. Yeah. And I actually think the beauty of what you do, and I know I serve as a fractional CMO for two different companies, I bring wider experience and not just past experience because we all bring that, but to bring that in real time experience from different industries, even though it's all B2B. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting that you parsed um, that I use virtual, not fractional. And I'm a really firm believer that words matter. And as much as you could say about fractional, you know, virtual, it's one the same, right? Right. Functionally, the answer is yes, it is. But there's a big difference between someone who's doing a fractional job and someone who's doing a virtual job. And so, you know, what I like to say is when I begin working with my clients is, look, you know, the benefit of working with me is, yes, you're only getting a certain percentage of my time, you know, based on whatever our agreement is but you get a hundred percent of my brain and that's not a hundred percent. And I'm sort of walling off this part because you know, oh, there's an additional fee for that. You get a hundred percent of my brain. So if I can help you in your go-to-market strategy, if I can help you with investment strategy, if I can help you with other areas that are outside of, you know, maybe what the original scope was or what we discussed, I'm going to bring all that to you because my job is to make you successful. And so that's the first comment about virtual versus uh, fractional. And I really encourage your listeners, you know, also think about how you talk about yourself how you talk about what you do. And even as a full-time employee, in fact, I could argue that as a full-time employee, it matters as much or even more because it's so amazing when you hear one person who just describes themselves in kind of the, you know, the HR job description, right? What do you do? Oh, and they, and they rattle that off and you hear the next person and they have a narrative and who are we always drawn to? We're always drawn to the person with story. You know, so as marketers, we should get that more than anybody. Right. But yeah, the big advantage of working with 
a seasoned professional in a fractional role uh, or a virtual role, let's go ahead and use the correct language there, is that it's exactly as what I tell my clients is that you do get that 100% of the professional's brain of their experience. And marketing in particular is so dynamic today that there is a lot of advantage to being able to say, hey, I've done this before, you know, at even if it's only two or three companies or if it's 10 or 12, doesn't really matter. But hey, I've done this before. Here's how we do it. Here's what we need to do. All right, let's get all the resources together. Let's execute. Obviously, there's advantage in that. But it is so dynamic today, just the business climate and the markets and the market shift and changing buyer behaviors and just everything is almost flipped upside down, that it's actually not sufficient to only look back and say, here's how you do it. But being able to look back gives you incredible clarity and insight into the path forward. And that's where I have found that there's just a big difference between someone who has covered the ground before, even when the ground in front of us looks different than any of us have ever faced. I think this gets back to our very beginning where we were talking about the relationship between the CMO, CRO, and CEO. I run a nonprofit organization. And so there's a CEO. There I am. And we have other people involved too. But what I think sometimes we, especially as CEOs, forget to do is to actually out loud say the pie in the sky dream. I think people hold that back too much. If that CEO, that founder, that president is the one who had the vision in the first place, they need to continue talking about the next iteration of those visions and to make sure the people that are with them at that C-suite level are open to that or may want to contribute additional dreams and maybe are totally in alignment with, oh my gosh, I had that same thought. How do we do this? I think that gets set aside too often for logic and data and typical expectations and just getting through the to-do list. Yeah. And it's really tempting and it's an easy trap to fall into as the head of marketing and especially in small to medium-sized companies. And this is true of massive teams as well, where if you have 350 people in your marketing org, Obviously, you're not directly managing those people as a CMO, but you know you have all your frontline managers. It's a huge structure, right? And just the task of keeping everybody on point, keeping all the trains running on time can just become overwhelming. But it's super interesting. A number of years back, I started really thinking a lot about this whole idea that we've heard a lot about uh, in marketing is that the CMO chair is the shortest tenure of the whole C-suite, right? And uh, everybody's read the studies and the surveys and read the articles and I, I usually don't bother, but it does get covered a lot. And there's, you know, up on LinkedIn, you can read a lot of this, you know, oh, the CMO chair every 18 months, 20 months, 24 months, whatever it's turning. And you do see it a lot, right? You do see sometimes very high, high profile people, high profile jobs. And yep, they lasted 18 months and now they're out and onto something else. I used to think that, of course, you know, I never knew necessarily any of these individuals directly. So I didn't know if they were, but you know, I always assume like, oh, well, they must've done a bad job, you know, like, or, or they just, they just didn't get the job done. And I kind of had that thinking. 
until I got to know a few people <laughs> who had this experience. And I went, wait a second. Right. These people are actually top of their game. Yep. How in their last position, they crushed it. This new one, they didn't crush it and got run out, you know, or found another job before they got fired. So wait a second, this isn't an issue of performance. Mm -hmm. It's not an issue of could they get the job, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But why is that? Were they unfairly treated? Well, no, they didn't get the job done. So the company is right to make a change, but what happened? Invariably, and there's always circumstances, right? So you can always find corner cases, but here's a common theme that I observed. Common theme was, number one, They took the playbook from what they did before and assumed, rightfully so, it worked here, it's going to work there. Yeah. Okay. And when I say rightfully so, because that's not necessarily an incorrect assumption. You crushed it. You built this company over seven years from 20 million ARR to an IPO and whatever. Like, no one can take that success from you. You clearly executed a playbook. And then all of a sudden they join this startup at a very different phase. They try and take the same playbook and it crashes and burns. Okay. So number one, what I observed was that they just weren't mindful for whatever reason, tried to apply the same playbook and it rarely works. Number two, and this is where we get to the heart of what we're really talking about here is, is that they didn't actually understand the business that that business was in. Why? Because they often were so tactically focused and there's a lot to do, right? So they were so tactical. So in their one-on-ones with the CEO, everything is about, oh, here's my hiring plan. Oh, we're struggling here. We're struggling there. Hey, I want to allocate more budget. Hey, I want to do this. And then maybe there was an hour once a quarter before the board meeting where they would sit down with the CEO and say, okay, what are we going to present in the board slides? And then in that, the CEO shares at a high level, well, you know, here's where my head's at. Here's what I'm going to be telling the board. And so they get a little bit of strategy, but the rest of the time, they're completely disconnected from what's actually happening in the business. What ends up happening then is you're executing a marketing plan that in some cases is at a minimum, it's not actually contributing to the business success and to the, to the goals of the organization. And in an extreme version, it could even be working against, you know, because they're not aware, right? And so what I found was then, here's the interesting thing is, we all have seen the marketing leaders and the CMOs, especially the last three to five years, this is pretty common. Look at the unicorns. Look at some of the high-flying, you know, the hot, we could go down the list, right, of all the common, common company names that many of us know and admire. And you look at some of the marketing leaders there and you go, these are atypical people, either because they came from different career paths, or you just look at their background and you say, wow, you know, like if that person tried to interview today for the company they're at, I don't know if they would get hired. You know, they probably wouldn't be able to get their job and yet they're crushing it. Why? Because they have invested in learning about the business. They spend time with the CEO. They understand what the strategic value is, and they're probably able to contribute to the conversation. So not just listen and understand, but actually say, hey, you know what? That's really interesting. And here's what I'm seeing. And this is what I learned over here. And I'm wondering if we should be thinking about this and actually contributing to the strategic direction of the company. And that will transform marketing 
in today's market. Well, let's look at the reverse of that. So the reverse of that, and I've watched CMOs, seasoned, successful crushers, go from company to company and repeat the process, like you were saying. That's right. They knew what they're doing, but I've also seen it where they get hired by a company who sees that track record, wants the goodies without knowing what those companies were made of. And so they're saying, Mm. I have this company, I do my way, my way, and I want to win like those companies and make, I want that person to help me make me win. And without ever revealing though, the nuances, the ego, the politics and everything else that were already preventing that company from growing, they kept it hidden and tucked away. And so this successful person, no matter what they did, is going to fail. I hate those stories. <laughs> I know. I, I do too. Oh my gosh. I get so They're excited painful. for people. It is. It's like, oh my gosh, you got this great new position. I'm so excited. They are going to benefit from everything you've done. Yeah, yeah. And then six months later, it's like, I'm, you know, gaslighting. You know, they're gaslighting me and I'm out. And yeah. this is why. I, yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So that takes us though back to a couple of our other points. And I know we're not going to, you know, here's point point two, point three, But we have two things we need to cover and you already covered a lot of this. The reason why you feel today's CMO should be a business strategist and an ecosystem domain expert first. So we talked about knowing what you're dealing with, knowing the product, knowing the company and the company's goals. But I want what's left of that to feather into how do you approach making your first marketing hire Mm. and why recruits from big name companies often fail? Yeah, exactly. So just a comment about, like you said, going back to very successful people who have gone from company to company crushing it. And then all of a sudden they, you know, they get sold this great dream. They join a company and six months later, they're out. Boy, everyone would like to believe, oh, I would have seen that coming. You know, like <laughs> I would have known. And yet, you know, so many very, very smart, talented people fall into the trap. So it tells me like, I shouldn't be so arrogant myself as to think that, you know, But I do think that this is one area where it really helps when you have command of the business that that company is in. So of the ecosystem, because a lot of times it was just misplaced expectations. It was, you're being hired to walk on water and guess what? None of us walk on water, you know? So whatever, there can be a lot of reasons why expectations were off. But it really helps during the interview process. And, you know, when you're in all those discussions and, you know, when you're interviewing at that kind of level, it should very much be a two-way interview. In fact, you know, in my opinion, it should be more of like, I'm interviewing them, you know, we're interviewing than the other way. But, and it was someone with a track record, that's what it is, because that company's trying to woo, you know, they're trying to convince you to come. They already know you're good. So, you know, it's... uh, But um, the more that you know about the market, the more that you can suss out where there's expectation mismatch. And I had an experience early, uh, uh, oh, this was like 12, uh, no, uh, almost 15 years ago now, hard to believe, when, uh, and at that time, it was a sales leadership role that I took. And uh, it was very interesting because, you know, we basically, you know, we reached an agreement, both really excited. It was a high profile venture back company. And as we were, and very smartly, the CEO, as, you know, as, as I was, 
um, you know, we're finally down to like basically the offer letter, but everything was kind of done. It was, but you know, I had to put some ink on paper and he says, I want to meet you in person, you know, and let's just sign this in person. It just, we're super stoked. So I flew to meet him and we sign and he says, okay, so now let's really talk about, you know, we talked loosely about the goals, but let's really talk about the goals, about the objectives, like the next 90 days, because we need some numbers, right? Well, I learned very quickly that his ideas were pretty far out. They were ambitious is a nice way to put it. However, because we had trust and because he recognized me as a domain expert, I was able, I didn't just say, you know, well, uh, those are, (laughs) wow, (laughs) that's steep. I said, you know, maybe it'd be helpful if I modeled a few things for you. So I started writing down some numbers about the channel and about things just at a very high level. I mean, very high level using just big round numbers. And I said, and here's, you know, and I profiled all out and I said, so now, you know, we're hoping to get this and boy, that'd be great. But you know, here's how big the market is. I remember him kind of sitting back going, wow, well, that puts, a big, you know, kink in my revenue plan. However, I know what you say to be true. Those are like his exact words. So now imagine if I either had not been able to do that because I didn't have that understanding of the market or for whatever reason, you know, I was shy to, you know, approach it. But if I hadn't done that, I I don't know if I would have gotten fired, but boy, it sure would have been a rough 90 days. And, you know, when you like miss by 70%. And you're the hot new sales leader. It's supposed to come in and crush it, you know? And so that's just one example where I think when we join companies and we talk, the more that we can bring to them, it's educational for them as well. Because guess what? If they're working off a particular set of data or assumptions, it's incorrect. Whether or not we end up joining or not, we're helping them. Because, because that's not helpful. Just to go find somebody who says, yes, I'll do that. Just because they are hoping and praying, like that's not a recipe for success. So that's one, you know, reason why I really, really, really believe that having domain knowledge, if at all possible, is essential. Now as marketers, I'm just, listeners, I'm just making sure you know the difference. We're not talking about web URLs when we say domain expert. Can you give the broad definition of what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, I really like using the word, uh, a lot of people say industry expertise, you know, that's fine. And I think everybody very well knows what someone means when they say, Hey, we need someone with industry expertise, but I really prefer the word ecosystem because industry is inward facing. It's the industry. It's who's my competitors. It's who are the, you know, top 10 accounts in the industry, you know, that, that we could possibly sell to who are, it's, it's all, it's all kind of about us. Ecosystem is who's the network of players that we might indirectly or directly need to interface with, sell to, cooperate with. Maybe there's even coopetition. You know, you hear about that. An ecosystem is actually where I think businesses get broken, not industry knowledge. So if you think about all industries, doesn't matter what you're in, there is the industry and then there's an ecosystem that exists both in that industry and around the industry. And it is really important to have command of that. So that's when I say domain knowledge, that's what I'm talking about. 
like for example, going back just to, to my example, sales, right? Well, I knew the particular channel that I was actually being hired. I was hired to build a, a sales team to go after a very specific channel. I knew within round numbers, how many dealers were even existed in the US. I knew how much revenue the average dealer did. I knew how many jobs that that average dealer did. And therefore I had a rough idea of just how many units we could possibly even sell. And so in very simple math, I mean, this was not complicated. I didn't pull out industry reports. I was able to say, well, there's this many number of dealers. They do on average this much revenue. They do on average this many jobs. We're looking to do our set of numbers. That means that like, we're going to have to capture 30% of the industry in the first 90 days. I would love to tell you I can do that, but you know, and, and that's the, you know, lean back in the chair moment and go, Oh, okay. Well, so we have to adjust or I can go find someone and say they will, and they're going to fail and that's not going to serve anybody. So that's, that's what I mean. Now let's talk about, uh, because you also asked, uh, the question about the first marketing hire. Switch to that. Yeah, let's, let's switch okay. over to that point. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, making your first marketing hire and, and it's also related a, a little bit, I'm going to touch and I think answer this question of, um, you know, maybe why it's not necessarily the best idea to go hire the new hotshot out of the latest unicorn no. that just IPO'd. No. Now, now, let me preface and say that I am talking largely about earlier stage companies or, or sort of, you know, gross stage companies. So a lot of this is sort of situational. Uh, so it depends on where your company's at. But uh, if you are in the earlier, you're, you're still startup, you're just, you, you know, you just reach product market fit, you're just starting to get a little bit of traction, this applies to you. So there's a couple approaches that you can take when you're making your first full-time marketing hire. One approach is you get a generalist, you get someone who still very much is a practitioner. In other words, they're a doer, just put simply. You know, they may not be the best writer, but they can write. They can write something that reads very well that you can put up on LinkedIn, you can put on a blog post, et cetera. So they can write. They may not be a graphic designer, but they have a design sense and they can work with somebody maybe in your company or a freelancer and they can get design done. They know email marketing. So they know HubSpot, they know Pardot, they know some sort of marketing automation. No, they're not an expert. No, they're not a quote unquote administrator, but they can manage that. So that's a generalist. Now, the advantage is, is that it, at that stage, you need a doer because there's no one else in the company who probably knows any of that. So you need a doer. So that is an excellent place to start, but it has one huge problem. And and this, this is often when I engage with a company is that this person probably doesn't have the breadth of experience in the ecosystem. They may not be that interested. They're usually pretty task focused. They're usually pretty good managers of time. You might on the creativity scale, give them a six out of 10, maybe a five out of 10. Uh, and, and, 
and you know, uh, maybe if they're really creative, it's a seven out of 10, but it's not an eight. It's not a nine. It's certainly not a 10. And so what ends up happening is, um, is that companies hire someone like this. They come in, they start getting a few things going. Then pretty soon, you know, the CEO, especially if the CEO is a little design oriented or someone else in the company, they start going, boy, you know, our, like our website kind of looks like, you know, like 2013 still. And uh, our emails are, you know, formatting's a little weird. And, and all of a sudden they start getting dissatisfied. Now, the reality is, is that you have someone who isn't capable of, they're, they're, they're fulfilling a very critical function in marketing. And so this then is where you need to bring, um, either have someone in the company or bring someone in externally who can set a vision, who can understand how to talk to the market, bring the domain expertise, script out the bullet points that are relevant, and then this person goes to execute you know, to use, to, to kind of use that. Okay. Exactly. So, so usually my suggestion is, is that this is probably the best place to start. If you're just talking about one hire. Now there's another path to go. And the other path is, is where you bring in the strategist, you know, sometimes I like to call them the conductor. So this is somebody who probably is more senior. And, and I use that word, not, not necessarily in years of experience because, um, this marketing generalist could have 15 years of experience. It's just that because of their temperament, because of who they are, they're never going to be creative. They're probably a little more left brain than right brain. But that's important. So much of marketing is logistics and it's tactical and it's, and it's project management and especially around events, it's making sure stuff gets done, you know? So this is an important role, but the other path, the other idea is that you say, okay, we're going to go find the conductor and the conductor is probably somebody who, again, it's not that they're going to execute the creative expression, but they're going to have the ideas. They're going to be capable of generating the ideas. They are going to have a very, very good understanding of the ecosystem. They're going to yes. know how to talk to the market. They probably feel equally comfortable, you know, talking marketing strategy as going on a sales call. Yes. Even though they're not necessarily a salesperson, but the account execs are happy to have that, that person join them on a call because they know they're going to contribute. They're going to, they're going to actually help the sale. And then what that person does is then that person finds the lowest cost way to build a virtual team around them. And that virtual team can be design pickle for design, by the way, not to plug anybody, but, um, you know, there's just some phenomenal solutions, you know, there are other phenomenal solutions out there for design, for writing, there's writing services and there are ways that for the cost of a good, depending on the market you're in a good senior kind of a marketing generalist, you can have your design base covered. You can have your writing base covered. And with the conductor, you know, this person, then you can do really effective, raise the quality of marketing. And yet your overall, you know, expenses are actually quite low. You're not running with a huge team. What I like though, what you're talking about the conductor marketers, Except the fact, and we said this earlier, you're salespeople and what you sell is the vision. And that's the whole thing because that's what gets a sales team or the easiest prey. 
sales managers are the easiest people to sell to. They really are. They're just suckers for it. <laughs> you can sell them anything you believe in and can come with some type of visual dream that they can see could happen and could benefit them. So that is the job of the conductor is to sell that. And then after it gets accepted, then assemble the team and sell it to them so they can continue to help it be executed. Never miss an episode. Check out rootedinrevenue.com and subscribe on the site to get weekly updates of when new episodes come out or find us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio. We want to be where you are, so go subscribe. We'll get you all the information you need to do your best with marketing of events and your online presence.